This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So I'm clicking around like everybody else trying to find something to watch on Netflix or Prime Video or Hulu. And as I was hit by this sort of revelation, which I will share with you in just a moment. But it's Friday, so I want to take a moment to say, hey, hope you have a good weekend coming up. Media Buzz, uh, still a work in progress. Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. Hope you'll catch that on Fox. Now, back to our previous monologue. It suddenly hit me as I'm looking at movies that were made, you know, because you get the whole range, you know, whether it's HBO Max, you name it, that were made, let's just say, arbitrarily before 2018 or since 2018. And there's really a dramatic difference, and that is almost every movie now uh, made since 2018, 2019, the one constant in these movies, whether they're good movies, bad movies, whatever, are phones. People are constantly on their phones. They're texting, texting, they're checking, they're emailing, and often it pops up on the screen. And so now anything made before that time where people are not constantly on their phones, I mean, they have cell phones, but they're not, you know, completely and totally absorbed posting on Instagram, now feels a little dated. I mean, in some ways, they may be better movies because it's harder to do a lot of plot twists. You know, think of all the movies you've seen where the plot turns on the guy is trying to find the girl or they agree to meet, but then there's a mix-up or he doesn't know that she's... Uh, canceled on him, or anything like that. Well, nowadays, you look at it and say, yeah, why doesn't he just text her? Because that didn't exist. So I'm not saying better or worse. I am saying, I mean, the classic is Emily in Paris, which, you know, doesn't, I mean, 15 seconds don't go by without somebody texting somebody else or posting something on Insta, et cetera. Um, you know, you could argue that reflects, you know, go to any restaurant. See a bunch of people, particularly younger people. They're sitting at the table or on their phones. They maybe talk to each other a little bit. Anyway, this was a revelation that occurred to me. And speaking of movies, this is from the Daily Mail. Robert Redford wore two pairs of tight underpants. This is the reason I'm telling you this. During sex scenes with Barbara Streisand in the movie The Way We Were to, quote, protect himself from the actress who was infatuated with him, according to a new book. The book, is, in fact, is called The Way We Were, How Epic Battles and Bruised Egos Brought a Classic Hollywood Love Story to the Screen. And the author says that Redford, who's now 86 years old, how is that possible, um, didn't really want to work with Streisand, who's now 80 years old, and how is that possible? Um, because he didn't consider her to be a serious actress. I mean, she was primarily known as a singer. And he wanted to protect himself because he was a happily married, presumably, according to this, father of four. 
But Barbara Streisand, again, according to this book, was mesmerized by Redford's physical beauty and desperately wanted to get it on with him. I don't know. Maybe she did. Probably a lot of women might have been in that category at the time. At the time, Redford was 36, Streisand was 30. Uh, she wore a bikini for their sex scene, but Redford uh, doubled up on the underpants, made sure the whole scene was pretty G-rated. Uh, eh, that's enough of that. So I got to turn a little more serious here. We have Russian officials, you know, in the wake of uh, Russia's now acting, you know, just outraged and is to save face as it has uh, done some missile strikes on Ukraine because of the Abrams tanks, uh, the U.S. tanks that are going to Ukraine along with those G- German uh, Leopard tanks. In the meantime, press freedom in Moscow, forget about it. Um, Russian officials, which have already, you know, stifled the press coverage of this war, uh, just uh, named a website called Medusa as an undesirable organization. The latest news outlet to, uh, you know, get run over by the Kremlin propaganda machine and saying that Medusa posed a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. Um, And... Some of these places have been shut down. Now, Medusa posts a lot of things on its website, has a million subscribers on Telegram in Russia and elsewhere. It was blocked in Russia at the start of the war, but this new undesirable designation means even worse consequences. Now, this is really mind-boggling. Anyone in Russia who go, he just goes to the site and likes anything, any of its social media content, could face fines or jail time. So not only is, are there great limits on what Medusa can do, but, you know, you sort of go there at your own peril. Uh, according to this story, the site plans to continue to publish. Future plans unclear. Uh, it's already been labeled a foreign agent. Um, and, you know, kind of knew this was coming. Anyway, what's also got me really concerned and worried and just heartbroken, another one of these situations where a black man has died at the hands of police. This is Tyre Nichols in Memphis. And there were five Memphis police officers Routine, or it seemed to be a routine traffic stop. Stop. And they've now been charged. They've been fired. They've been charged with second-degree murder. Yesterday, in the beating of Tyre Nichols, and the thing is, all five of the officers who have been charged and fired are black. So this is not a case of a bunch of good old boys, you know, taking it out on an African-American suspect. He's not even a suspect. 29-year-old father pulled over for a traffic stop. This is back on January 7th. He fled the scene fearing for his life. Wonder why he had reason to feel that way. Um, There are other counts here, aggravated kidnapping, aggravated assault. And then we come to the body cam footage which the Memphis authorities say is absolutely horrifying and awful. And it's going to be released today on YouTube 
about 7 p.m. Eastern. And naturally, there's a lot of concern about what will happen in Memphis tonight and over the weekend. Um, the family, and there's, a, there's a, just a gut-wrenching interview by CNN's Don Lemon with the mother of Tyra Nichols who talks about how the police tried to cover this up, how she knew when she went to the hospital to see her son, saw all his injuries, how badly bruised and swollen his face was, that she knew that he was not going to survive. He died three days later. Um, Family lawyer says the video shows the officers using pepper spray, a stun gun, restraint tactics. Um, Five against one, an unarmed man. It's just outrageous, and your heart breaks for this mom and for the family. And President Biden has put out a statement saying this is outrageous, but we should have peaceful protests. The family saying the same thing. Of course, George Floyd's family uh, asked people to protest peacefully as well, and that, of course, did not happen as violent riots spread across the country. Um, it's just, it's just unbelievable. And it, and because it's not a case of white officers and a black victim, it just makes you wonder what were these officers thinking? There's, there's some talk of a groupthink mentality among them. So we'll all have to brace ourselves to see what happens once this was, is released. I'm not sure releasing it, uh, on a Friday night with the whole weekend coming up is the best plan. But nevertheless, uh, they at least want to make sure all kids are off the street. Um, oh, President Biden, a week later, confirming that, yeah, Ron Klain is leaving. So he issued this long statement. He's known Ron Klain since he was a third-year law student. And that Jeff Zients will take his place. Thank you for that breaking news, Mr. President. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, number one. So the New York Times has this very long, deep-dive piece about the Durham investigation. This was, back in the Trump years, at the behest of the president... Bill Barr's attorney general named John Durham as a special counsel to dig into the theory, the argument that the Russia investigation probably stemmed from a conspiracy by intelligence or law enforcement agencies. And, you know, as we now know, it didn't lead to much. There were a couple uh, of indictments where the defendants were acquitted, and there are one or two cases where the defendants pleaded, pled guilty or were convicted. But the New York Times, which, you know, I have to say is sort of protecting itself here, you know, has a very definite view about its own involvement in the origins of the Russia investigation. And so you got to take that into account when you read it, but it's one of these, you know, meticulously reported stories. Interviews of more than a dozen current and former officials revealed these previously unreported episodes. For example, Barr and Durham 
never disclosed that the inquiry expanded back in 2019 based on a tip from Italian officials to include a criminal investigation into suspicious financial dealings related to Trump. So here's a, 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 a probe that was kind of designed to either vindicate Trump or raise serious questions about why he was pulled into this whole uh, allegations, you know, the Steele dossier and all that. In the first place, ends up investigating financial dealings related to Trump, but no charges brought. Okay. Durham used Russian intel memos, which other U.S. officials suspected would have, might have contained disinformation, to gain access to emails of an aide to George Soros, the, you know, wealthy liberal financier and philanthropist who the right hates. Uh, Durham used grand jury powers to keep pursuing these emails of, of the service aid, even after a judge twice rejected his request for access to them. Uh, didn't seem to lead to anything. Then we have uh, uh, divisions on the Durham team. Back in 2020, the number two person, Nora Danahy, um, quit. A year later, two more prosecutors strongly objected to plans to indict a lawyer with ties to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. Yeah, I remember that case. They said the case was flimsy. Durham brought it anyway. Uh, a jury acquitted that Clinton lawyer uh, pretty quickly. One um, attorney who has dealt with all this is quoted as saying, this stuff has my head spinning. When did these guys drink the Kool-Aid and who served it to them? Then we get into this other factor, which is, uh, a guy named Michael Horowitz was the Justice Department's uh, inspector general. In December, he put out his own report, on, and he's completely independent, on the origins of the Russian probe. That IG report revealed errors and omissions in wiretap applications targeting a former Trump campaign advisor, found that an FBI lawyer had doctored an email that person pleaded guilty. So some of this is going back over stuff that may sound somewhat familiar to you, except what we didn't know was the way in which uh, this was handled internally and ultimately led to nothing. Uh, Horowitz, the IG, found no evidence that the original tip from an Australian diplomat that led to the Russia, Russia, Russia investigation um, that there was anything wrong with that. In other words, he says the investigation was justified based on what the FBI knew at the time. Now, finally, uh, let's see here. Summer of 2020, it was clear that the uh, Durham probe was going nowhere. So Bill Barr waited until after the 2020 election to publicly say there turned out to be no sign of foreign government activity and the CIA had stayed in its lane when it came to this investigation. Now, remember that Donald Trump was kind of stirring things up here, not just by that he wanted the Durham investigation to um, get underway, but he kept repeatedly saying, and you want to talk about politicizing Justice Department, President Trump kept repeatedly saying that Barack Obama and VP Joseph Biden um, might be charged in the Durham probe. Barr couldn't take that, and in May of 2020 said that our concern of potential criminality is focused on others, even so. 
Trump goes on Fox and says Obama and Biden, along with top FBI and other officials, were caught in the single biggest political crime in the history of our country. And there would be charges, Trump said, except unless Barr and Durham wanted to be politically correct. Well, they had their investigation. They had their guy. He had lots of time to look into this, and it turned out to be a nothing burger. Story number two, as long as we're on the subject of one Donald Trump. So Trump has a a campaign event or a couple of events in South Carolina this weekend where, according to media reports, he's having trouble sort of ginning up a lot of enthusiasm. So he's added uh, an event in New Hampshire where he's going to address some sort of official New Hampshire body or the New Hampshire Republican Party. Um, But New Hampshire is a really tricky state for Trump. And I have covered many, many New Hampshire primaries. I've spent a lot of time in that state. It's always the state, you know, Iowa to some extent played this role, but New Hampshire being sort of independent and maverick, it's always the state where the front runner is ripe for an upset. That's what happened in 2000 when John McCain beat George W. Bush by 19 points in New Hampshire. Uh, I don't have to look that up because I remember it well. It didn't win McCain the nomination, but it certainly jump-started his campaign. Um, And according to this Reuters piece, um, only three of the ten New Hampshire Republican Party officials and members, uh, some of whom worked on Trump's 2016 campaign, all of whom have been his supporters in the past, only three of them out of those ten are sticking with him this time around. The rest cited, again, just reading from Reuters, exhaustion, you think, with Trump's controversies, exasperation at the constant drama, and a desire to move on from Trump's 2020 loss with a fresh face. And a lot of them favor Ron DeSantis. I mean, New Hampshire is almost built for a Ron DeSantis candidacy. And I read somewhere there's a poll showing DeSantis with something like a 12-point lead in New Hampshire. Really early. DeSantis hasn't declared yet. But here is a guy named Brian Sullivan. He's a Hillsborough County, excuse me, Hillsborough County Republican committee member who backed Trump in 2016. I would rather see someone else like Ron DeSantis in the race, Sullivan says on the record. Uh, While he likes Trump's policies and he thinks he had a lot of achievements in office, quote, he's got so much baggage. I just don't think he has what it takes to win the White House again. Now, look, that's the opinion of one guy. And as I said, you know, New Hampshire can trip you up, but not necessarily deliver the nomination, as in the case of John McCain in 2000, as in the case of lots of people, as in the case of 2020 of Joe Biden who got clobbered in Iowa, who got clobbered in New Hampshire, all the brilliant professional pundits said, well, you know, he's done, he's toast, you know, he's too old, he's too out of touch, he's not liberal enough. And then came South Carolina, which Biden wants to go first this year, obviously a more diverse state with a very significant uh, African-American vote. And in in 2020, it was Jim Clyburn who basically single-handedly saved Joe Biden's candidacy by getting the black community to rally behind him. And it's the thing about New Hampshire and the thing about Iowa is that they're predominantly white and rural states. So that's why there's always been a debate about their role. Um, So we'll see how New Hampshire goes for Trump's appearance this weekend. Number three, 
circling back to uh, Facebook, lifting the two-year ban on Donald Trump, and I talked a lot about the partisan reaction yesterday. Interesting piece in The Atlantic that says it's not that big a deal for either side, and here's why. Now, of course, this is in The Atlantic. It's a liberal magazine. They have to kick Trump around a little bit before getting to the main point. So it says, ah, any story that involves Facebook, Trump, and the context of a failed coup attempt is by nature controversial. Giving Trump this megaphone back for his 2024 campaign is particularly thorny. Former president has offered zero evidence that he changed during his social media exile. He may still use Facebook and Instagram to lie for reasons big and small, whip up partisan resentment and even violence. Okay, you got that out of your system? All right, now let's get to the interesting point. There's something underwhelming, says The Atlantic, stale even, about the news. The story of Trump's deplatforming feels cryogenically frozen, a 2020 narrative that seems to have lost part of its relevance now that it's thought out. This is partly because it was kind of anticipated, okay, in 2021, a Trump suspension that would be lifted after two years. Um, there's also the mutual decay, interesting choice of words, of both Trump and Facebook. Remember, Facebook has lost a huge amount of its market cap uh, over the past year. It's just not as popular, especially with younger people. Uh, it's got a lot more competition. So interestingly, the Atlantic says each thrives by hijacking attention and monetizing outrage, and they've benefited each other. The Trump campaign spent millions of dollars on more than 289,000 Facebook ads uh, in just a few months back in 2020, uh, but both have lost the juice. Many people still support Trump, many people still use Facebook, but the shine is gone and that matters. Um, and so people forget, remember, Elon Musk has put, has cleared the way for Trump to be back on Twitter. And I think that is the more important development. I think clearly, given his obligations to Truth Social, he's trying to figure out how to do it. But, you know, that was the messaging platform. And there's two ways to look at this. On the one hand, if Trump goes back on Twitter, he's gonna reach a lot more people than he's reaching now on Truth Social. And therefore he has the ability potentially to dominate news cycles once again. On the other hand, if people see him kind of ranting about the 2020 election, about Elaine Chao, about all this other stuff, they may be turned off. It may remind them of the things they did not like about Trump. Um, getting back to Facebook, its ad business was kneecapped last year uh, by because Apple uh, made some changes to limit tracking on its devices. And, of course, Facebook kind of relied on that. Facebook has become a vast wasteland of recycled memes and scammy, spammy clickbait. I think that's a little unfair. I think a lot of people still use Facebook for its original purpose, find out what friends and family are doing, uh, check out old boyfriends or girlfriends. Um, you know, it's obviously become a lot more politicized since its earlier days. Um, but there is an aspect of Facebook where people post their photos and, and all of that. So this, to me, is a little bit too anti-Facebook. Um, and then it goes on to say that none of this negates the possibility Trump could return to Facebook and Instagram and abuse his power by posting QAnon conspiracy theories and attempting to sow chaos. And, you know, Facebook and Nick Clegg, the former British deputy prime minister, who's now at the top, uh, a top executive there, 
um, have made clear that if Trump does things that can be perceived or in violation of Facebook's rules in terms of stirring people up or inciting violence, that he could be suspended again. Anyway, the bottom line in this piece is it's not clear that the reinstatement will matter much, except for fundraising, which could be a big factor. And if you have, if you have Trump back on Facebook and Twitter, and by the way, you know, for all these people who are like, oh, this is terrible, um, Maya Gay of the New York Times sent an MSNBC, we're handing the keys to democracy to someone who tried to destroy democracy. Okay, we get it. She doesn't like Trump. But the keys to democracy, I mean, he'll raise a lot of money on Facebook. And he'll advertise a lot on Facebook. And that's no small thing. But just the people tearing their hair out, I mean, just calm down a little bit. I mean, yes, January 6th was horrible. It occurred two blocks from my office. Uh, I still think about what happened on that awful day. But the flip side is, are you going to say that the only declared presidential candidate and at least front runner, New Hampshire notwithstanding, for the 2024 GOP nomination can't be allowed on Facebook because a lot of people don't like him or they're mad at him for what he did in the past? Well, that's not what's happening. But we'll see if it in turn, if indeed it turns out to be a big deal. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number four. You may not be closely following, and in fact, you may not care at all about the uh, election taking place today for chair of the Republican National Committee. But it became kind of interesting in the last 24 hours because of Ron DeSantis. So just to set the scene here, um, Donald Trump gave the job in 2016 to Rana McDaniel, and she is the incumbent, and she will probably win. Although, obviously, there's a lot of unhappiness with the RNC because of the losses in for the GOP in 2018 and 2020 and 2022. She says the RNC will be neutral in this upcoming primary, but, you know, she is sort of seen as Trump's person, Rana Romney. McDaniel, who then stopped using her middle name because she's related to Mitt Romney, and somebody didn't like that. Okay. Her main opponent is a woman named Harmeet Dillon. And she's got some support, but it's an insider game. You know, it's like 168 people get to vote, and that's it. And it's taking place at some fancy resort, some seaside resort. And... Literally 24 hours, meaning yesterday, before the Republican committee members vote, out of nowhere, Ron DeSantis decides to weigh in. And the Florida governor says, I think we need a change. I think we need to get some new blood in the RNC. I like what Harmie Dillon said about the, getting the RNC out of D.C. I do think we need some fresh thinking. And practically, you need grassroots Republicans to power this organization with volunteering and donations it be very difficult to energize people if they don't change direction. He said this not talking to a journalist, but interview with Charlie Kirk, uh, the founder of Turning Point USA, who is backing Dylan. And DeSantis went on to say that, uh, talking about the Republican Party losses in the 2022 midterms, um, where the political environment, he said, and he's right, was tailor-made to make big gains in the House and the Senate, 
and state houses all around the country, and yet that didn't happen. So it's fine, you know, for DeSantis to jump in. And if Harmeet Dillon wins, then that will be seen as, you know, a reflection of the clout that DeSantis has. But she's probably not going to win. Even her own people were saying, this is before I believe DeSantis weighed in, that she was at least a dozen votes short. And Ronald McDaniel claims to have the votes. But my question is, well, why wait? Like, why do this at the last minute when you have a limited amount of time to influence anybody? Oh. Dylan also says she'll remain neutral in any 2024 primary. Um, So we'll see. It's now interesting almost as a proxy fight between Trump and DeSantis as opposed to the players themselves. By the way, um, Elon Musk, you remember him, tweeted yesterday, just met with Speaker McCarthy and Rep. Jeffries to discuss ensuring that this platform is fair to both parties. So Elon Musk was here in Washington, went to the Capitol, had a meeting with Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy came out about 30 minutes later and said, oh, he just wanted to wish me a happy birthday. And they had a good discussion. But now the way that Musk is casting this, and by the way, I think it's a good thing that he talks to both sides because he's always talking about, you know, the extremes of both sides, et cetera. So, however, there's been a little pushback from Hakeem Jeffries' camp. He, of course, the House Democratic leader. And his people say there was no scheduled meeting with Congressman Jeffries. Musk just happened to bump into him when he was making the rounds on Capitol Hill, and they chatted a bit. So if Musk went there only or mainly to talk to Kevin McCarthy, then that makes him look obviously leaning strongly toward the Republican side. If he went there to talk to both men, then that's where I think he should be. But it is interesting and kind of in the Elon uh, oeuvre that He's now contradicted by the top House Democrats. He says, I don't know, you know, we bumped into him. We didn't plan a meeting at all. Maybe that's them covering their flank because a lot of liberals, as you know, don't like Elon Musk. This is fascinating. And remember when Elon Musk was going to give up the CEO job after based on Twitter poll? He's still there. I mean, he, he would still run it. I guess he hasn't been able to find somebody who could take it over. All right, number five. I, I am fascinated by and can't quite figure out the whole business with Dianne Feinstein and the California Senate race. In other words, her seat is up in 2024. Now, I first met Dianne Feinstein. This is to show you how long I've been around. She was the mayor of San Francisco, and she came on Meet the Press and Meet the Press at the time had a moderator, but the questions were asked by a panel of reporters. And I was covering urban affairs at the time, so I got picked to be on the panel. So I met her and I asked her a question or two during that appearance. Which is a, a not so subtle way of saying Di Fi has been around forever. She's now 89 years old. I just saw her interviewed in the hallway. And I have to say, I was kind of struck by how frail she looked and sounded. 
Um, and she said, and this was on TV this morning, that she needs a couple of more months to decide whether to run for re-election. Um, because I guess her husband has cancer and they're dealing with that. Okay. So how is it that these other Democrats are declaring for her seat? I mean, it seems like a kind of a rude thing to do. First, it was Katie Porter said, okay, I'm in, I'm running, seemingly regardless of what DiFi does. And then Adam Schiff, who, of course, just got kicked off the Intel Committee. And maybe that's a good thing for him because now he can go out and raise money, not worry about, I mean, he'll be on other committees, but not worry about the Intelligence Committee and try to win that California Senate seat. I mean, he's been around in California politics for a long time. So he was asked on MSNBC, well, how is it that you're running when Dianne Feinstein hasn't said that she's not running? And Schiff said, well, I've talked to her a couple of times. And uh, let's see here. She was very gracious. I let her know I wanted to make my announcement. And she could not have been nicer about it. Uh, yeah, but what if she runs? Again, Schiff, once more, I have genuine admiration and affection for her and wanted to do everything I can to respect that. Uh, Schiff, by the way, served in the California State Senate before he became a congressman in the L.A. area in 2000 and was a close ally of Pelosi. So is there a sort of an unspoken wink-wink thing going on here where Feinstein has sort of decided not to run but isn't re quite ready to make the announcement? Is that how somebody like Adam Schiff can get into the race? Um, I don't know. Or do they just not care? And if Feinstein runs, they'll try to beat her. She might be entirely possible since, as I say, she's 89 years old. She'd be, I don't know, 96 at the end of the, the term if she were reelected again. And she said on TV in this interview, like, they want to run, run. You know, she's not stopping anybody. So I guess the inside baseball is that she's probably not going to run. Um, in 2020, she gave up her assignment as the top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, under pressure from her party. And that was during the Supreme Court confirmation hearing of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, because I guess the feeling was that, you know, she has slowed down considerably and wasn't really up to the job. So Schiff has about 20 million bucks raised. Uh, Katie Porter's 7 million. I don't see here how much money uh, Diane Feinstein has. So I guess it is kind of a kabuki dance. I would be surprised now if she runs and there's a contested primary, especially with everybody, and it's particularly Schiff, who says he's worked with her on assault weapons and everything. But that's politics for you. There are times when you run against friends. There are times when you try to push friends into not running. And that's why politicians have to have that gene, you know, that ambition gene where they can do things to further their careers but make it sound like it's just for the good of the country, right? So once again, I uh, hope you have a great weekend coming up. Hope you'll catch Media Buzz. Thank you for sharing this time with me. I feel like we get to cover a lot of ground here, a lot more than I can cover uh, on television. So I always enjoy talking to you. And we're back here Monday with more Buzzmeter.
Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.